Chapter Twenty Three of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please see LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Twenty Three. Truth Stranger Than Fiction. Is the poor privileged to turn the key upon the captive freedom? He's as far from the enjoyment of the earth and air who watches o'er the chains as they who wear. During certain seasons of the year, all tropical climates are subject to epidemics of most destructive nature. The inhabitants of New Orleans look with as much certainty for the appearance of the yellow fever, smallpox, or cholera in the hot season as the Londoner does for fog in the month of November. In the summer of 1831, the people of New Orleans were visited with one of these epidemics. It appeared in a form unusually repulsive and deadly. It seized persons who were in health without any premonition. Sometimes death was the immediate consequence. The disorder began in the brain by an oppressive pain accompanied or followed by fever. The patient was devoured with burning thirst. The stomach, distracted by pains, in vain sought relief in efforts to disburden itself. Fiery veins streaked the eye. The face was inflamed and died of a dark, dull red color. The ears from time to time rang painfully. Now mucus secretions surcharged the tongue and took away the power of speech. Now the sick one spoke, but in speaking had a foresight of death. When the violence of the disease approached the heart, the gums were blackened. The sleep broken, troubled by convulsions, or by frightful visions, was worse than the waking hours, and when the reason sank under a delirium which had its seat in the brain, repose utterly forsook the patient's couch. The progress of the heat within was marked by yellowish spots, which spread over the surface of the body. If then a happy crisis came not, all hope was gone. Soon the breath infected the air with a fetid odor. The lips were glazed. Despair painted itself in the eyes, and sobs with long intervals of silence formed the only language. From each side of the mouth spread foam, tinged with black and burnt blood. Blue streaks mingled with the yellow all over the frame. All remedies were useless. This was the yellow fever. The disorder spread alarm and confusion throughout the city. On an average, more than four hundred died daily. In the midst of disorder and confusion, death heaped victims on victims. Friend followed friend in quick succession. The sick were avoided from the fear of contagion, and for the same reason the dead were left unburied. Nearly two thousand dead bodies lay uncovered in the burial ground, with only here and there a little lime thrown over them to prevent the air becoming infected. The negro, whose home is in a hot climate, was not proof against the disease. Many plantations had to suspend their work for want of slaves to take the places of those carried off by the fever. Henry Morton and his wife were among the thirteen thousand swept away by the raging disorder that year. Like too many, Morton had been dealing extensively in lands and stocks, and though apparently in good circumstances, was, in reality, deeply involved in debt. Althesa, although as white as most white women in a southern clime, was, as we already know, born a slave. By the laws of all the southern states, the children follow the condition of the mother. If the mother is free, the children are free. If a slave, they are slaves. Morton was unacquainted with the laws of the land, and although he married Althesa, it was a marriage which the law did not recognize, and therefore she, whom he thought to be his wife, 
was in fact nothing more than his slave. What would have been his feelings had he known this, and also known that his two daughters, Ellen and Jane, were his slaves? Yet such was the fact. After the disappearance of the disease with which Henry Morton had so suddenly been removed, his brother went to New Orleans to give what aid he could in settling up the affairs. James Morton, on his arrival in New Orleans, felt proud of his nieces, and promised them a home with his own family in Vermont, little dreaming that his brother had married a slave woman, and that his nieces were slaves. The girls themselves had never heard that their mother had been a slave, and therefore knew nothing of the danger hanging over their heads. An inventory of the property was made out by James Morton, and placed in the hands of the creditors, and the young ladies, with their uncle, were about leaving the city to reside for a few days on the banks of Lake Pontchartain, where they could enjoy a fresh air that the city could not afford. But just as they were about taking the train, an officer arrested the whole party. The young ladies as slaves, and the uncle upon the charge of attempting to conceal the property of his deceased brother. Morton was overwhelmed with horror at the idea of his nieces being claimed as slaves, and asked for time that he might save them from such a fate. He even offered to mortgage his little farm in Vermont for the amount which young slave women of their ages would fetch. But the creditors pleaded that they were an extra article, and would sell for more than common slaves, and must therefore be sold at auction. They were given up, but neither ate nor slept, nor separated from each other, till they were taken into the New Orleans slave market, where they were offered to the highest bidder. There they stood trembling, blushing, and weeping, compelled to listen to the grossest language, and shrinking from the rude hands that examined the graceful proportions of their beautiful frames. After a fierce contest between the bidders, the young ladies were sold, one for $2,300, and the other for $3,000. We need not add that had those young girls been sold for mere house servants or field hands, they would not have brought one half the sums they did. The fact that they were the great-granddaughters of Thomas Jefferson no doubt increased their value in the market. Here were two of the softer sex, accustomed to the fondest indulgence, surrounded by all refinements of life, and with all the timidity that such a life could produce, bartered away like cattle in Smithfield Market. Ellen, the eldest, was sold to an old gentleman, who purchased her, as he said, for a housekeeper. The girl was taken to his residence, nine miles from the city. She soon, however, knew for what purpose she had been bought, and an educated and cultivated mind and taste, which made her see and understand how great was her degradation, now armed her hand with the ready means of death. The morning after her arrival, she was found in her chamber, a corpse. She had taken poison. Jane was purchased by a dashing young man, who had just come into the possession of a large fortune. The very appearance of the young southerner pointed him out as an unprincipled profligate, and the young girl needed no one to tell her of her impending doom. The young maid of fifteen was immediately removed to his county seat near the junction of the Mississippi River with the sea. This was a most singular spot, remote in a dense forest, spreading over the summit of a cliff that rose abruptly to a great height above the sea, but so grand in its situation, in the desolate sublimity which reigned around, in the reverential murmur of the waves that washed its base, that though picturesque, it was a forest prison. Here the young lady saw no one, except an old negress who acted as her servant. The smiles with which the young man met her were indignantly spurned. 
but she was the property of another, and could hope for justice and mercy only through him. Jane, though only in her fifteenth year, had become strongly attached to Volney Lapic, a young Frenchman, a student in her father's office. The poverty of the young man, and the youthful age of the girl, had caused their feelings to be kept from the young lady's parents. At the death of his master, Volney had returned to his widowed mother at Mobile, and knew nothing of the misfortune that had befallen his mistress, until he received a letter from her. But how could he ever obtain a sight of her, even if he wished, locked up as she was in her master's mansion? After several days of what her master termed obstinacy on her part, the young girl was placed in an upper chamber, and told that that would be her home until she should yield to her master's wishes. There she remained more than a fortnight, and with the exception of a daily visit from her master, she saw no one but the old negress who waited upon her. One bright moonlit evening, as she was seated at the window, she perceived the figure of a man beneath her window. At first she thought it was her master, but the tall figure of the stranger soon convinced her that it was another. Yes, it was Volney. He had no sooner received her letter than he set out for New Orleans, and finding on his arrival there that his mistress had been taken away, resolved to follow her. There he was, but how could she communicate with him? She dared not trust the old negress with her secret, for fear that it might reach her master. Jane wrote a hasty note and threw it out of the window, which was eagerly picked up by the young man, and he soon disappeared in the woods. Night passed away in dreariness to her, and the next morning she viewed the spot beneath her window, with the hope of seeing the footsteps of him, who had stood there the previous night. Evening returned, and with it the hope of again seeing the man she loved. In this she was not disappointed, for daylight had scarcely disappeared, and the moon once more rising through the tops of the tall trees, when the young man was seen in the same place as on the previous night. He had in his hand a rope ladder. As soon as Jane saw this, she took the sheets from her bed, tore them into strings, tied them together, and let one end down the side of the house. A moment more, and one end of the rope ladder was in her hand, and she fastened it inside the room. Soon the young maiden was seen descending, and the enthusiastic lover, with his arms extended, waiting to receive his mistress. The planter had been out on a hunting excursion, and returning home, saw his victim, as her lover was receiving her in his arms. At this moment the sharp sound of her rifle was heard, and the young man fell weltering in his blood at the feet of his mistress. Jane fell senseless by his side. For many days she had a confused consciousness of some great agony, but knew not where she was, or by whom surrounded. The slow recovery of her reason settled into the most intense melancholy, which gained at length the compassion even of her cruel master. The beautiful bright eyes, always pleading in expression, were now so heart-piercing in their sadness that he could not endure their gaze. In a few days the poor girl died of a broken heart, and was buried at night at the back of the garden by the negroes, and no one wept at the grave of her, who had been so carefully cherished, and so tenderly beloved. This reader is an unvarnished narrative of one doomed by the laws of the southern states to be a slave. It tells not only its own story of grief, but speaks of a thousand wrongs and woes beside, which never see the light, all the more bitter and dreadful, because no help can relieve, no sympathy can mitigate, and no hope can cheer. End of chapter 23